Church family, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 119. We're continuing here in our summer series in Psalm 119. We're going to, in a moment, read verses 97 through 104. If you weren't here last week, if you were here last week, you already know this, but if you weren't here last week, I will uh, tell you why I have a young man standing beside me, which is not always that common. Zach is one of our pastoral interns with us this summer. Uh, One of the things our interns learn how to do is preach, and part of learning how to preach is learning how to read, and so he is going to read for us here in just a moment, but I want to encourage you, church, uh, that in two Sundays, uh, we will have our third Sunday evening service, so if you're new with us, we gather together on Sunday mornings every Sunday, and on the third Sunday of the month, we gather together Uh, in the evenings again, and one of the reasons I like doing that service is it gives more people a chance to preach, kind of really gives us a preaching lab. Both of our interns will be preaching brief sermons uh, during that service. So church members, make an effort to be here for that. I would hope you would always make an effort to be here for that because we receive the Lord's Supper together, we pray together, Um, but this is a way for us to support our interns by being present in the room, being able to encourage them in the work that they have put in uh, as pastoral interns this summer. So I'll invite you to stand with me or stand with us as we honor the reading of God's word, and Zach is going to read for us Psalm 119 verses 97 through 104. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back, from my, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Thank you, Zach. Church family, let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for our opportunity to gather as the body of Christ here at Nansman River Baptist Church for the encouragement that we receive from uh, your word and from fellowship with one another. We pray, God, that you would illuminate our hearts to the truth of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as we will see in the text today, God, we pray now preemptively that you will sanctify us in your truth because your word, as Jesus says in, Psalm, uh, in John 17, your word is truth. So would we know it as truth? But not only would we know it in our minds, but Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you transform our hearts from one degree of glory to another as your word sanctifies us. Make us into the image of your Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we did last summer and this summer, and Lord willing, if the Lord tarries, we will do again next summer. We are walking slowly through each section of uh, Psalm 119, 22 sections, and we're dedicating one Sunday morning to each. And we're, I'm, I'm looking for ways as we pray through this together and, and consider this, I'm, I'm looking for varying ways to highlight much of the same ideas, Because Psalm 119, as we have entitled this series, is dedicated to the good word of God. It, from one 
section to another shows us and illuminates our hearts to how the word is good, how the word works. Last week, our sermon was intentionally doctrinal. It was talking about uh, knowing a truth, knowing that the word is perfect and permanent and powerful. Today, we're going to transition some and, and think about how. It's going to be a little more practical. How does the word do the work that it does? And there is an important distinction between these two things. Let me illustrate that for you. Here in a moment, or well, not in a moment, in an hour or so, or two, if you're staying for the second hour of small group, we will go and get in cars. We'll turn our key and we'll drive to a restaurant or we'll drive home. Most of us knowing that our car will do that. Very few of us knowing how our car does that. Now, I recognize there are some people in this room that could take apart a car and put it all back together and it still works. But those people are few and far between in this room. Most of you are like me. You know that if you put gas in it and maybe every now and then change the oil, that it was, it's fairly reliable to start and drive you to the places you need to go. You see, there is a difference between knowing that something is true and knowing how something is true. And this is what we want to see today, is that we can know how God uses his word to sanctify his people. It's important for us to know that his word does that, and we saw, we saw that last week, and we emphasized that from the previous verses. But today, we don't want to just see that this is true, but we want to see how God uses his word, how by the power of his Holy Spirit, his word works in our lives, individually and corporately, how the word of God works in our lives to sanctify us. Sanctification, I defined this last week just to give it again, the ongoing process of salvation. It is the present tense of salvation. I am being saved. It is the process of putting off sin and putting on Christ from growing from one degree of glory to another into the image of Jesus. And as we will see in our sermon today, the main idea there in your notes is that the word of God is the primary instrument of sanctification for those who believe. For Christians, the word of God is the primary means by which God will help you put off sin and put on Christ. It is how God will show you that which is true and thereby change your life. So we want to see that this morning. We want to see how God does that through his word. We'll divide these verses into three parts. The first, that the sanctifying word changes the way that we think. The sanctifying word changes the way that we think. Look with me in the first four verses of this section, beginning back in verse 97. The psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. Just quickly, I want to ask, do you love the word of God? We're going to end with this idea as well. When we get to the final verses, we're going to talk about how the word just becomes progressively more sweet to our taste that we progress in our love for. But I just want to start here. Do you actually love, do you agree with the psalmist? Do you love 
the law. The law here is a synonym for the word. Uh, The psalmist uses dozens of synonyms for the word of God here in Psalm 119. He's talking about the Holy Scriptures. He says, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I, for I keep your precepts. So after declaring his love for the law and declaring that he meditates on it all the day, the psalmist says really the same thing in three different ways, comparing himself to three different groups of people. In verse 98, he compares himself to his enemies. In verse 99, he compares himself to his teachers. And in verse 100, he compares himself to the aged or the elders that are around him. And in all three of these verses, he says, I am wiser than or I have more understanding than my enemies, my teacher, and my teachers, and even the old. So it's clear, it's easily clear that his enemies would not be dedicated to the word of God. But it also seems clear from this passage that, it, that the psalmist teachers and even those that the psalmist would have respected culturally had walked away from the word of God, that they were not dedicated to the word in the same way that the psalmist is. He, he says, in two places, both verse 97 and the end of verse 99, meditates all the day on the word of God, that he is dedicated to it. This is what he means when he says that he's meditating on it. He's not embracing some type of Eastern religion of emptying yourself clearing your mind so that you can somehow be one with the universe. Christian meditation is actually the exact opposite of Eastern religion meditation. Eastern religion says, free your mind by emptying it. Christian meditation says, fill your mind with the word of God. And this is what the psalmist is doing. He is, he is in essence saying, I am dedicated to your word by meditating on it. But he also says at the end of verse 100, for I keep your precepts. I'm, I'm obedient to your word. So how does the word transform our minds? The word transforms our minds because we have a spirit within us, a willingness to say, I am dedicated to knowing your word and I am dedicated to doing your word. So the word then has changed the way the psalmist thinks. In essence, that's what he is driving at in these first four verses when he says, I'm wiser than my enemies. I'm wiser than my teachers. I'm wiser than than the elders. I am this because I'm dedicated to the word of God and I obey the word of God because the word of God has transformed the way that the psalmist thinks. He has, in essence, repented. And you say, what in the world does changing the way you think have to do with a common church word that we hear often, the word repent? Well, that's actually what the word repent means. The literal definition of the word repent is to change the way you think. It is to go from thinking about your own way from being controlled by idolatry in your life to being controlled by selfishness in your life to, being, to doing things your way to change the way that you think to, 
dedicating yourself to doing things God's way, the way that God has stipulated that we would live. And this is the message of the gospel. There, there are people that want to talk to in today's Christian circles that want to talk about how repentance isn't necessary for salvation. This is shocking to me that there are people that would say that repentance isn't necessary to salvation, particularly when we think about how the ministry of Jesus himself began. There was, uh, in the months leading up to Jesus' ministry, uh, what I would call the last Old Testament prophet, even though he was in the New Testament, John the Baptist, a cousin of Jesus, who was the forerunner of Christ, and his ministry began, Matthew chapter 3, tells us that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change the way that you think, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You say, well, that's John the Baptist. Well, did Jesus actually do that? Sure, Jesus did in Mark chapter 1. Mark tells us that Jesus, the very first words that Mark records of Jesus, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. When we believe the good news of Jesus, that's what the word gospel means. When we believe the good news of Jesus, that God is holy and man is sinful, but Jesus has come to provide a way that we might be forgiven of our sins and restored to a holy God. When we do that, we do so in part by repentance, by changing the way that we think, by changing our minds. That by changing our minds, we are then radically transformed by the gospel. The apostle Paul affirms this in Romans chapter 12. In verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world. So conformity to this world is the way that lost people live. It's the way that every one of us lived before we came to faith in Jesus. It's what we used to be. You used to be conformed to this world and you still have a sin nature that tries to drag you back into conformity to the world. But Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? Remember, today's a sermon about how. How are we transformed? By the renewal of your mind. Paul says we're transformed by changing the way that we think. And how do we change the way that we think? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewal of our minds happens through transformation of our minds by the primary instrument of God's sanctification in our life, his word. So when we take a posture that the psalmist takes, I'm going to be dedicated to your word and I'm going to obey your word, here's what happens to us. Our minds are transformed. That I, so repentance isn't just a one-time moment in salvation, in, our, in the salvation story. It's not just salvation past tense, we repent and are justified, but repentance is a present tense part of sanctification, that there's this continual renewal of our minds, that we have to progressively change the way that we think because the world is always going to want to draw us back to conformity. You see this. I mean, just look around us. By the way, it's not new. People all the time want to talk about how things are bad. And listen, things are culturally bad. But things have been culturally bad for a long time. And things have been, I mean, really centuries. Going back to the Bible days, things were culturally bad in their day too. And the draw is always for Christians to conform to the culture, to conform to the world. 
Paul says, don't be conformed to that, but be transformed by allowing the word of God, by dedicating yourself to obedience to the word of God and how it transforms our minds. That our minds are renewed because our minds are transformed as we are committed to God's word working in our lives. And then what happens? Over a period of time, our minds become more and more aligned with the will of God. This is why he says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now here's, I wanna provide for us a little bit of a test because this is a sermon on how. So I want you to be able to look in your life and say, is this actually happening in my life? Is the word doing this? Well, we can go to something else that the apostle Paul wrote to help us with that. In Philippians chapter four, verse eight. The Apostle Paul encourages the church with this. He says, finally, brothers, whatever, and that's brothers and sisters, he's writing to the church, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything praiseworthy, think about these things. Now, what's think about? Think about is our mind, right? And so Paul in Philippians 4, 8 provides for us a pretty good test to look at our thoughts, to look at the way our minds work and to ask questions then about our sanctification. Is my mind focused on that which is true or that which is false? Is my mind focused on that which is honorable or that which is dishonorable? Is my mind concerned with that which is just Or is my mind focused on injustice? Is my mind focused on that which is pure? Or do I allow impurities into my thoughts? Is my mind focused on that which is lovely? Or is my mind focused on that which is disgraceful? Is my mind focused on that which is commendable? Or is my mind focused on that which should not be spoken of? Is my mind focused on that which is excellent? Or is my mind focused on that which is flawed? Do you see how we can use the scripture then to ask questions about ourselves? And you may say, you know what, pastor, I didn't pass the test on all of those. (laughs) Well, now you understand progressive sanctification. This, This is the point. The point is that you're not yet fully like Christ, but that the The Holy Spirit of God, using the primary instrument of God, his word, is working in your life from one degree to another. So hopefully you can look back, let's say six months, a year, two years, five years, a decade, and say, you know what? I think more about these things now than I did then. And then our prayer becomes this, Lord, if you give me another six months of life, another year of life, another five years of life, another 10 years of life. I pray, God, that I'm thinking more about these things then than I am today. That's progressive sanctification, that our minds are just constantly being transformed by the word of God. As we dedicate ourselves to the word of God and as we obey the word of God, inevitably these things become more and more true about the way that we think. So much of the way that we talk about the Christian life has to do with the things that we do. But in actuality, so much of the scripture is about the way that we think. Hear me, Christian. The way that you think matters. And how does the word of God sanctify us? Well, the first way that it does it is by transforming the way that we think. Number two. 
Now, this is a long point for me. My points aren't normally this long. The sanctifying word reveals to us what is evil and what is right so that we can avoid evil and walk in righteousness. Now we're going to talk about what we do. It helps us with how we think, changes the way that we think, and it tells us what is evil and what is right so that we can avoid evil and do what is right. Look with me in verses 101 and 102, then we're gonna go back and just consider them individually. 101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. Verse 102, I do not turn aside from your rules for you have taught me. There is a clear juxtaposition in these two verses. There's a contrast. There is evil and there is good. There is that which we should not do and that which we should do. And the Bible tells us, reveals to us what is evil and what is good so that we can then do, we can avoid what is evil and do what is good. Now, let me help us for a moment because we have a temptation that that conformity to the world, that drawback to the way of the world is ever present in our lives. And part of that conformity to the world that's ever present in our lives, that temptation, part of that is to define what is evil as good and what is good as evil. This is what our world does. And it does it in different ways from one generation to the next. What this generation, this coming generation, these young people today are calling evil and good and good and evil may be different if you're a little older than what your generation called evil and good, but they were just different. Everybody in the world wants to think that their actions are good when they actually, are actually evil. And those things that they don't like, they want to call evil when maybe they are actually good. And we're warned in scripture about this. In Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20, the prophet says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There is a clear warning in scripture to have are evil and good aligned with what God says is evil and good. Listen, I don't care what our culture says is evil and good. We should care what God says is evil and good. And the word does this. We go to the word to understand what really is evil and what really is good. The word reveals these things to us. We don't have to wonder. Isn't that, that, that may be the best news that you hear today. You don't have to wonder if something is actually good or if something's actually evil. God has told us what is good and what is evil. And so we can go and we can see. But we, there's a temptation within the church. There's a temptation within God's people to boil down this idea of good and evil to a set of rules, and this is sometimes the way that people speak about Scripture. Sometimes people speak about Scripture as if it is just a set of rules that we're supposed to obey. Some things we're not supposed to do, some things we are supposed to do, and if somehow we can stay away from the things we're not supposed to do and do the things we are supposed to do, then all will be fine. Understand something. You can never keep enough rules to please God. You can't do it. You're unable to earn your way into a right relationship with God. And if this is the way that you approach 
Christianity, if this is your understanding of Christianity, I'm just supposed to keep these rules, I'm supposed to do these things, and God will love me, and God will ultimately save me in the end. You're going to be sorely disappointed. We must understand that it's by the gospel alone, the power of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross in our place that we can be saved. What we're talking about is for Christians, how we are sanctified, how we're changed into the image of Christ by his word. So are there rules in the Bible? Yeah, there are rules in the Bible. But here's what happens as we grow. I'm going to show you this. I'm going to give you several examples here in just a minute. We're going to run through these quickly. As, as, as we grow in our understanding of the Bible, it becomes the rules become action. Less about do this, don't do this, and more about the way that our hearts are transformed because our minds have been changed. So let's look at some examples. Example number one, this is an easy one, murder. Is murder a rule in the Bible? Yeah, it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. That seems pretty simple, right? Don't murder. And I think that's something that everybody in this room, Christian or non-Christian alike, could probably disagree with. Murder is bad. But then Jesus helps us in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to look at a lot of law and then Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount is dedicated to kingdom ethic, kingdom living, how we are transformed into his image. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. We just read it from Exodus 20. And whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you, Jesus isn't contradicting the Old Testament. He's not saying, don't, he's not saying you can murder, but notice what he says. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the the, uh, hell of fire. So it's not just about the rule, don't murder. Sanctification is actually about recognizing that our relationship with people goes beyond, do I actually kill this other person or not? But how do I think about this other person? So how do we avoid, it's not just about avoiding the evil of murder in our actions, it's about avoiding the evil of murder in our hearts. And this is what the word of God does. It transforms us to recognize that I shouldn't hate my brother, that I shouldn't think of my brother as a fool, that I shouldn't insult my brother, that the way that I interact with other people matters, not just do I kill them or not, but how I think about them. How I hold them in my heart matters. Here's another example. Adultery. Also in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. You shall not commit adultery. Here's another easy one, right? Just a softball for us. Everybody in the room can go, yep, don't commit adultery. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And that's true. Jesus wasn't telling them to commit adultery. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus does is he expands on you shall not commit adultery to show us how we avoid the evil of adultery in our hearts. So the word, this first part, reveals evil to us so that we can avoid evil. But it's more than just obey these rules to avoid evil. It's about a transformed heart. 
that our hearts in relationship with one another, our hearts in the way that we view one another, our hearts in the way that we think about the opposite sex, that those things matter. It's not just about the action of murder and the action of adultery. A transformed heart is different. It's not just the rule. It's how in our hearts we are able to avoid these things so that we can agree with the psalmist in 102. I do not turn aside from your rules so that I can be obedient to what you have said is good. Because the word doesn't just tell us what is evil so we can avoid evil. The word also tells us what is good so that we can do good. The sanctifying word shows us what is right so that we can walk in righteousness. Here's some examples. The first one, children and parents, back to the Ten Commandments. You'll notice this is a this is not a don't do statement. This isn't a revealing of evil. This is a revealing of good. Honor your father and mother that your day may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Now, especially the parents in here are like, yeah, absolutely, kids. Listen, everybody's like poking their kid right now, all right? Listen to this, honor your parents. This is a good thing to do, but how do we do it? Well, again, as our minds are transformed, our hearts are transformed into from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ, what happens is we begin to recognize that there's more than just saying we honor our parents, which was a problem in the first century. People would say they would honor their parents, but they wouldn't take care of them when they get old. People would say they would honor their parents, but they, they wouldn't actually do what their parents say. And so Paul writes to the church in Ephesians chapter 6 and corrects this. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? For this is right. Remember, the word shows us that which is right so we can do righteousness. Then he quotes from Exodus 20. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well for you and that you may live long in the land. This is how we walk in righteousness as it relates to obeying and honoring our parents. An example, another example, how we think about retaliation in Exodus 21, which is the chapter just after the Ten Commandments. We read about what the Jewish people were supposed to do, the Hebrews were supposed to do if two men were fighting. I just find this fascinating. Two men are fighting and one of them happens to hit a pregnant woman and hits the pregnant woman to the point where she gives birth. What, what is supposed to happen, right? We're told, but if there is harm, so one thing, the verses I'm not reading, what happens if the baby's okay? But this, if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. A similar passage is in Deuteronomy chapter 19. It's where we get the phrase, it's where the people in Jesus' day and still today, we get the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Right? It was originally intended as a prohibition against the insistence upon overly severe punishment. So the, the rule of the day in the Old Testament was that the punishment should, another phrase that we use, punishment should fit the crime, right? It, it, was, an intention, it, was, it was an intention of staying away from a you know, tit for tat, he hit me, I'm going to hit him back, things we hear from the back of the car with children. But what happened by the time we got to Jesus' day, hundreds of years later, that's exactly what the rule had become. People were insisting on these little bitty, you know, make it right moments. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
You see, when the word sanctifies us, we are no longer out for vengeance. We become more willing to suffer wrong for righteousness sake. So one of the things that the sanctifying word does is it corrects misunderstandings and misuses of the word itself because that's what was happening in Jesus's day. The word was true, but the intention had been twisted by people. It had been misunderstood by people. And so the word Jesus is saying, you need to rethink the way that you're thinking about the word. And so the longer we spend in God's word, the more dedicated we are to God's word, the more we meditate on God's word, we have to be open to God actually changing our minds on the way that we think about certain sections of his word. It needed to happen in Jesus' day. But there is even more. Now, there's not an Old Testament correlation for this example because they had just made this up out of thin air. And Jesus corrects it in Matthew 5. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, love your neighbor is in the scripture. Do you know what's not? Hate your enemy. You, you cannot find hate your enemy in the Old Testament. We're never told to hate our enemies, right? But it was an extrapolation that the people had made. The people thought, well, if I love my neighbor, then I transversely can hate my enemy. It's why in Luke chapter 10, someone comes to Jesus and was like, tell me who my neighbor is. You want to know why he wanted to know? He wanted to narrow down his neighbor so uh, small so that he could hate everyone else. That was the intention. That was the primary way that people thought in Jesus's day was that they, they had a narrow understanding of neighbor so that they could hate others. By the way, just quickly, this is making a comeback today. It's making a comeback today in, in Christian circles as people are being encouraged to love those like themselves or love those of the same nationality or the same ethnicity and to hate those that are different than, other than, or part of another community or part of another nation. We have to resist this. Jesus tells us to resist this. We're not supposed to hate anyone. We're supposed to love people. Jesus says in verse 44 but of Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So not only does the sanctifying word correct our misunderstanding and misuses of the word like it did in the previous example, but the sanctifying word corrects even false belief. It corrects false doctrine. We must be open to the word showing us where we are wrong. Listen, this is vital. It's, it's a vital way that the word works in a sanctifying way in our lives by showing us not just where we've conformed to the world, but where we've conformed to a wrong understanding of the word itself. Be willing to have your mind changed about what you think about the word of God as we dedicate ourselves to it. Not be willing to compromise. I didn't say be willing to compromise the word of God. But be willing to say, you know what, I used to think the word said this, but now I'm, I'm more certain that it says something else as the word works in our lives. Number three, the sanctifying word becomes progressively more precious to us as we grow in our understanding of it. Look at these last two verses. How sweet are your words to my taste. I love your law, he says in the first verse. Now he says, how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Day after day, 
month after month, year after year, the word should become progressively more precious to us as we grow in our understanding of how it changes our minds and shows us right from wrong. This last Friday, many of you were here, we had the privilege together of celebrating the life of uh, Ben Dolman, a man in our church who had been a member of our church for, if our records are correct, 52 years. It's a long time. This church hasn't been around much longer than 52 years, only about 55 years old. And Ben and Judy joined in the early days of our church. And Judy went to be with the Lord in 2017. And then uh, just uh, about a week ago, Ben passed and we did his uh, funeral service on Friday. And one of the things the family, I mentioned this in my funeral sermon, the family brought to me uh, on Monday as we were meeting about the service, they brought to me Ben's Bible. And I looked in that Bible uh, to the date because it was not 50 years old. This had been Ben's Bible for 30 years. The, the, the date on that Bible was 1993. So right, right at 30 years ago, uh, Ben started reading that Bible. And listen, is worn out. And uh, the family said, actually said, I don't know that dad wrote in his Bible a lot. Well, as I looked at his Bible, what I found was that Ben wrote in his Bible a ton just hundreds of citations and notations. And here's what you could see. If you, and and there, there, there are probably dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of versions of that same story sitting out in this congregation today. We're just progressively over time, our love for the word makes it become more and more sweet to us that we want to know more about it, that we crave to study it, that we crave to know it, and don't miss this, that we crave to obey it and do it. There are some people, you can see it in their lives. They know tons and tons of things about the word. They're like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They know all about it, but they don't actually do anything that's in it. Oh God, let us be a church that not only loves your word, but is transformed by your word. So, before we move to our point of application, I gave you a test at the beginning, a test in the middle. Let me just give you a test here at the end. How sweet is the word to you? How sweet is it to you? Do you set it aside after we gather on Sunday morning and not think about it again until I tell you to open it next Sunday? How sweet is it to you? Are you dedicated to gathering with a small group of people here in our church? We want every member of our church, and nearly every member is, dedicated to a small group of people who do four things together, and one of them is communicate truth from the word of God. Are you personally, as our our first core value says, are you personally dedicated to the study and application of God's word in your life? If you're not, here's what you need to do. Dedicate yourself to it. Meditate on it. Read it. Study it. Recognizing that it will progressively grow more sweet to you. We can think about the word like coffee. Some of you hate coffee and you'll never drink coffee. The first time you drink coffee, you probably didn't like it very much. But the more you drink it, at least for me, (laughs) someone who has drank the same version of large coffee, one Splenda. To me, that's perfect coffee. And I've drank it that same way, I don't know, since Splenda has existed, I guess, 20 years or so. And at first, it's kind of bitter and has these weird flavors to it. But the more you drink it, the more you love it, and the more you can't do without it. The word's the same way. It becomes sweet to our mouths, sweeter than honey. It helps us to hate that which is evil, to love that which is good. So what? A question for you. Am I growing in likeness through the ministry of the word in my life? It's really simple. 
Am I like the psalmist? Is my mind being transformed? Am I growing from rules to obey to heart change? Do I love the word? I want us to think about the way the apostle Peter instructs the church in his first letter to the churches in Asia Minor. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes to them this. So put away, he's going to talk about evil, right? So put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These are evil things that the Bible shows us are evil. And we're supposed to put them off, put them away. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So grow up into salvation is talking about, as I introduced at the beginning, the progressive sanctification in our lives, right? That we're putting off sin, we're putting on Christ moment after moment, year after year in our lives. And how do we do it, Paul says? Like newborn infants longing for pure spiritual milk. Where do we find pure spiritual milk? We find it in God's word. It's where we find it. So how do we know to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander? We know how to do that because the word tells us how to do that. How do we know how to grow up into our salvation when we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good? We know how to do that because the word shows us how to do that. Oh, Christian, be dedicated to the word. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you heard me say earlier, there are not enough rules in this world that you can keep and you can never keep them good enough to please God. If you have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then there's an invitation to you today. Repent, change the way that you think. Go from you being in control and dominating your life to saying, I'm going to submit myself painfully at first even to the will and way of God and allow that to become sweeter and sweeter as he not only justifies me at the moment of my faith, but then he sanctifies me over the course of my life. Believe in Jesus today and be saved. If you hear that and you say, I want to know how I can be saved, at the end of service, I'm going to be with our Connect team in the lobby. Come and find me. We'll talk with you and share with you how you can trust in Christ. For the church, test yourself to find, am I like a newborn infant longing for the pure spiritual milk that is the word of God so that my mind can be transformed, so that I can put off evil and walk in righteousness because I have tasted and I know this, the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are good and that your word is good for us. Even when in our flesh we see it and we struggle against it and we kick against the goads wondering why you would say certain things to us, why you would give certain instructions to us, why you would prohibit some things from us. But we can know that it is always, God, for your glory and our good. It is to show us that what is evil. And it's to encourage us in that which is right. God, would you continue to do the work that you do by transforming our minds, by changing our minds little by little. Help us not to grow discouraged in the places where we have yet to conform to the image of Christ. Help us not to look at other Christians who have done so for much longer than us and by your grace are more like Jesus. Let us be encouraged by their walk, not discouraged by it. Oh God, would you use your word to continually transform your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand with us as we sing?